You're listening to Stan Getz and Joao Gilberto doing Para Mutar Char Meu off of the Getz Gilberto Gilberto album. Uh, you heard before that Star Trek with the Star Trek theme. Alice Cooper did Devil's Food and the Black Widow. Stay tuned for the Living Writer Show. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for joining us today. My guest in the studio is performance artist Holly Hughes, winner of two Obie Awards for her off-Broadway plays, Dress Suit to Hire and Clit Notes. She has a book published of her performance pieces called Clit Notes, a sampler. She is a widely known and renowned or infamous and famous for being one of the <laughs> NEA4. Do I get to pick between infamous or famous? Oh, yes. We'll circle right back to that. <laughs> um, and she teaches here at the University of Michigan Department of Art and Design, a veteran of the 90s culture wars, part of the NEA4, um, that we'll talk about the infamous famous. Um, she's known for her lyrical language, scathing political commentary, and um, hilarious performance. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you in the oh, studio Oh, it's today. fabulous to be here. You said wonderful. I upped the ante. Uh, fabulous. So, you know, we can only build from there. Well, why don't we go back to infamous and famous and let oh, you vote in on that back before to infam- we... <laughs> well, I'd like to be both infamous and famous. Um, I mean, infamous... Yeah, both infamous and famous. So I could sort of toggle between, you know, like there were like two coasts that I could go between. Or, you know, my summer home and my, you know, my place in the mountains, my place by the beach. My infamous... <laughs> You know, digs that give me street crud um, or street crud. <laughs> street crud, a little street crud. Yes. Um, well, that gives us a lot of fertile territory to work with today, then. We'll, we'll go between the beach house and the, the city house. <laughs> uh, we normally start the show off with a little bit of your work, and I wonder if you would read from Clip Notes for us. Oh, I'd be very happy to. Uh, don't you... Don't you hate it when people ask you why you are, what you are, as if you have any idea? I mean, all I know is I am a woman that loves another woman who most people think is a man. And once we're in San Diego together, okay, we checked into this really great hotel, the best hotel in San Diego, the Hanalei. It is Polynesian from the word go. There's a, a big pink neon sign outside that announces a taste of aloha where you can taste it before you even check in. There's styrofoam Easter Island heads everywhere. The bed, it's a volcano. So every night there's this luau. It's included. It's gratis. So, of course, we go. And I love the way they slip those pink plastic lays over your head. I just love that. I, I love the thought of those day-glow flowers blooming long after Rick Santorum is gone. <laughs> I hope. I look out in the AstroTurf, and they got kids chasing each other around, folks sipping Mai Tais, pina coladas. They got a hell of a show at the Hanalei. They got hula dancers. They got fire eaters. They got a Don Ho impersonator who is much better than the real Don Ho. Nobody cares that it's not the real Polynesia. It's all the Polynesia we can handle. It's the one we invented during tiny bubbles 
She starts kissing me, and everybody's looking at us. But you only see what you want to see. And what these people want to see is not a couple of dykes making out at the luau. So that's not what they see. They start translating us into their reality. What they think they're seeing is uh, uh, Matt Dillon making out with uh, Julie Andrews, a young Julie Andrews, before Victor Victoria. I don't mind. It's not that I'm in the closet. <laughs> I'm so far out of the closet, I've fallen out of the frame entirely. There aren't any words for us, so they can't see us, so we're safe, right? Oh, sorry, I get confused. I... I forget that invisibility does not ensure safety. We're we're not safe. We're we're um we're never safe. We're just I don't know. You tell me. Wonderful. Thank you. That's performance artist Holly Hughes reading from her book Clit Notes. Um the play of the same name won an Obie Award and off-Broadway play. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. I wonder. Let's let's start there then with okay. invisibility, invisibility, <laughs> and safety, <laughs> and um, let's do sort of a back to sort of basics. And if you'll, most of the folks that I interview on the show mm-hmm. are strictly on the page writers, mm-hmm. and you are an in the flesh performance mm-hmm. artist. I'm not and very on strict. <laughs> So Whether I'm on the page or off the page. Off the page. We've got the whole range from the country to the city house. Um, but I wonder if you tell me a little bit about what it is to be a writer who is a performer and how, um, what it is that you are as a performance artist. Um, well, I think of myself mostly as someone who's interested in, I'm interested in storytelling. I'm interested in um um, personal narrative. I'm interested in, in autobiography. I mean, I started out in a different place. I, I started out as a writer really interested in, uh, and I still am interested in campy stuff, to use a technical term, stuff. But I was inspired by going to see these, like, um, drag shows in um, the Lower East Side of Manhattan where people would be putting on, you know, um, the the entire history of Lithuania in high heels or, you know, everything that you needed to know about Shakespeare performed by one drag drag queen um, from Indiana, a long time from Indiana. And I just, I was just amazed by um, the spectacle, the skill, the outrageousness. And I, I thought, like, I really wanted women to take up that much space, you know, to, like, have phony accents, big hair, um, false eyelashes, and all all that jazz, all that great campiness. Um, and so my first work was really modeled in an homage to, to that tradition, and then I got more pretentious as I went on. And... Um, but starting in the in the um, late 80s, I started really being interested in autobiography, which I think of as new and improved autobiography, meaning that stuff that stories that I tell um, are are true, and some of it actually happened. Um, so it's kind of um, yeah, I use my artistic license. I keep it renewed. Um, but I I like um, I like I like the audience. I like that I'm involved with the language, but I, it's different when it's in your mouth, when it's in your body, than when it's on the page. Um, I need that instant gratification. I had a brief flirtation with 
painting as I was when I was younger, and I just, you know, I I, I don't I need adult supervision. I can't like I'm not a self starter. I can't go off in the room and just like. You know, paint and be all artistic on my own. I need, you know, <laughs> you there's need an audience. So the, when you work then, I mean, many writers talk about the writing process as a very solitary process. You go off into the, the mm-hmm. garret or the equivalent mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. and write. Mm-hmm. Is your writing process more in front of the audience? Do you compose as your work do and work through material with people? I do. I go back and forth. I mean, some, some parts of my work have been, um, you know, stuff that I've, you know, sitting. You know, I've, I've I've sat down and you know gone into whether it's you know your imaginary garret or the local Starbucks and and worked on it. But um, a lot of stuff grows out of storytelling in informal situations. But then I try and script. Um, so right from the moment, I'm imagining the listener and imagining an audience and and. Um, that's that's an important that's an important component of it um um who's hearing it how it's being heard um getting a chance to ham it up um you have a piece that you're working on right now called virginia i <laughs> who's afraid of virginia <laughs> ham and you know anyone who is afraid should identify themselves now yes um it's it's a it's a piece that was commissioned by the Institute for Research on Women and Gender at um, the University of Michigan, and it's um, it's a piece I'm creating with a group of uh, undergraduate students here at the university, about 25 students from different parts of the school, and um, also with some graduate students, and it's loosely, loosely, very loosely. Um, based on the history of women and gender at Michigan. Um, so it's a chance also for artists to sort of respond to that history. How does that history or what we find out about it inform the way we live we live today? Um but as it start as I started to work on it, um I I I it it became also a lot about how artists do research and how they respond to what we find. We went to the uh, the Bentley Library, which is an amazing. Somebody said it was like the Museum of Ordinary Life, which I just thought was a great image. But you know, you could go there and you could see the LGBT collection, and you know, that would have like cassette tapes of disco music, but would also have these scrapbooks of um, you know uh, gay men who uh, were. At College in the 1920s, um, and a whole other range of, of of stuff. Boxes full of dance cards, um, photographs that documented that you know the the great drag tradition here, or blackface tradition too. Well into the you know mid late 20th century of putting on blackface productions here. So um, we went there, and students. Um, looked at this material and started to generate projects out of it. Like one man um, fell in love with this photograph of this man from 1910 and started to imagine that they were in a long-distance relationship across time and starting to write about that. And, you know, someone else became obsessed with dance cards and what they represented. Um, and 
So, um, and another thing that came up at the at the Bentley was, um, since we have a lot of art and design students in the class, the librarian said to us, there's, um, you know, we don't take, there's we, two things we don't take. We, we don't take, um, we don't take three-dimensional objects, and we don't take boxes of junk. Um, <laughs> How do they decide? I Which know is the exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, the sculptors in the class were incensed. You know, no you don't take three-dimensional objects. So, um, so they started thinking about an alternative Bentley. That the three-dimensional uh, object. The Bentley? three-dimensional object, but would it also have rumors, hearsay, buzzwords, shadows, junk? Junk. <laughs> what was junk? And somebody was saying, "Well, why? Why would you rent storage space um, for you know twenty nine ninety nine a month when you could just give it to the Bentley?" Um, so it's it's a, a it's going to be a multimedia performance piece we're going to do um, in April fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth at the um, Duderstadt uh, Video Studio up on North Campus. Up on on scenic North Campus. Just follow the deer down the path. <laughs> The people thin out. The you know the um, the ice cream shops thin out, and <laughs> but we have deer it. and multimedia. Up and it's there. a beautiful facility. Right? That's that's an amazing. It is. It's resource. a really great facility. If I knew something about digital, anything, I I'm sure I would be blown away. But <laughs> <laughs> but alas, it's just there. <laughs> it's there. I'm I'm amazed and intimidated every time I walk through there. Well, you've mentioned that some of your material comes from your experiences on the Lower East Side in New mm-hmm, York mm-hmm. and from sort of designated research trips, this grant from the mm-hmm. Institute on Women and Research and Gender. You are a Michigan girl. You grew up in I Saginaw, am. Michigan. I'm a Michigander. I'm a Michigander. I know. Um, does Michigan I thought I put figure... It be. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But that doesn't sound very Michigan, does it? You can tell I got out. At one point, I did get out. No, I was reared, at least the first time here in this state in uh, Saginaw, the Navy bean capital of the world. I'm sure I don't have to tell any of the listeners that it is the Navy bean capital of well, the world. Well, I just learned that it's You just Navy. learned. That was, that's news to me. <laughs> of the world, of the okay? World. And um, I went to Kalamazoo College, and then I went to um, um, I went to uh, the, I went to New York in the late 70s, and um, you know, didn't know what in the Hell, I was going. I was almost. I almost said a word I couldn't say, but I can say hell, right? Hell has been recuperated. You know, it's like limbo. It's. it's I think we're all right. We're okay with hell. I didn't know what what I was going to do there. I was sort of a waitress without a cause for a while, but then I got involved with this group of women, um, um, who were. It was a feminist collective of women who had been run out of other feminist collectives for having the wrong hairstyle or no hairstyle or fucking. Oh, it's gone now. Um, and the wrong person. <laughs> oh, calls are coming in already. Um, and I, I got involved with this group of women that had this really great alternative space that they advertised as a home for wayward girls. Um, some of the people that were working there, Split Bridges Theater Company, Carmelita Tropicana. Split Bridges were just here. The Split Bridges were just here. as well. Carmelita's coming. Mm-hmm. And um, Lisa Crone, whose play just opened on Broadway well. Um, uh, Karen Finley. Lots of other people that worked at this at this space. And it was a great, fertile time to be in the East Village. It was not completely gentrified. Um, there was a, a great 
art scene at that moment, and you could go from gallery to bar to see a bunch of, you know, a bunch of work going on um, without going very far. And that was that was an incredible sort of education by immersion. Um, the second rearing. <laughs> it was the second rearing. Oh, that's my. That's my new chat book, new the, chat, second the second rearing. Re- <laughs> second rearing. Well, we're going to take a short break, okay. and then we'll be right back. My name is Ashley David. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is performance artist Holly Hughes. We'll be right back. <gasps> You're tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Holly Hughes. We're talking about, uh, among other things, um, rearing first and second rearing, Saginaw, <laughs> Michigan, and then New York. Um, I'd like to circle back to the piece that you read at the beginning of the show, um, which, uh, toward the end of that piece, you talk about, um, wait a minute, invisibility is not safe. And I mentioned in the introduction that you were part of the NEA4, and, and many of our listeners may or may not be familiar with that. So I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about um, the, what the NEA4 is. Sure. It was this bad band that you probably remember from the <laughs> 80s, and they played your middle school prom. Oh, like, you were exactly. I had on a terrible for, dress. <laughs> <laughs> you were hoping for Duran Duran, but you got the NEA4 instead. <laughs> um, at the end of the 80s, there was this... Um, right-wing led and funded controversy about public funding for the arts. Um, And it it started around some photographers. It started around controversy around the late photographer Robert Maplethorpe um, and Andre Serrano, but quickly kind of spread to other media. But a lot about public funding of art that was – deliberately often provocative, um, but sometimes provocative only because it, it the makers or the subject matter were somehow culturally marginalized. And in particular there was a it was a real um backlash against gay and lesbian artists. In fact there was a, a ban that um was passed by Congress in nineteen eighty nine banning um federal funding for work that was deemed homoerotic. And um, I had applied for and received NEA funding before that um, and applied as a performance artist in that in that year in 1990. Um, and uh, there were so many um, funding disputes that happened. I, I, we could be on the air from now till Christmas just listing all of the different disputes that happened. So this was only one of them. But um, 
uh, I was one of 18 performance artists that year that was recommended for funding, but um, then our funding was revoked um, for four of us, um, three uh, three of us openly gay and, and one feminist artist, um, Karen Finley. And so we sort of got catapulted into... Um, into the culture wars, really, into this whole sort of debate about uh, not only about public funding for the arts, um, but uh, but it was part of many many other larger debates. I think about you know about public funding, period. You know about public funding for education. Anything that was publicly funded has come under attack, often under attack by the same people that attacked public funding in the arts. Um, but um, also about a huge backlash to the visibility of um, an, a gay and lesbian movement that had started to think of it as queer in the wake of the AIDS epidemic, um, a really sort of newly energized, in-your-face, to use the lingo of the time, um, uh, queer movement. And so we were all queer artists and working in a form that's not very well understood, that's easily um, reduced to a couple of sound bites, like an artist smeared with chocolate and putting, you know, yams up her ass, which was something that Karen Haley never did, but that, that that became sort of an easy way to reduce the work, like the painter Chris O'Feely, um, who was a flashpoint of controversy in, I believe it was 1998, one of his paintings was at the Brooklyn Museum. He's a Nigerian-born British artist, and, and, and his work incorporates um, elephant dung, which is a traditional African art material. It's dried elephant dung. It's not, anyways, but it quickly became, it was, you know, it was sort of like, feces on the Virgin Mary, you know, um, in other words that I can't say, smeared Virgin Mary. Um, it was like such a great soundbite that it was it was just, who needed to see the art? Um, when you had the commentary. When you had that, when they had that image. And um, the anxieties that were given voice to by the religious right, people like Jesse Helms and Donald Wildman, American Family Association, and uh, people from the Christian Coalition were not really um, limited to the right wing. I mean, I think that America as a country is very un uncomfortable about the role of arts, very uncomfortable about this very anti-intellectual, um, um, erotophobic country. Um, that Puritan streak is, you could Puritan. get lost in it, you, you know, it's never really been completely charted and bridged, the Puritan streak. So I think that that was, um, I think if it had possibly been, I don't know, abstract painting that they'd gone after, but to go after work that was talking about the body and talking about the body in taboo ways at a time when there was a epidemic of an incurable sexually transmitted disease um, just touched into huge cultural anxieties. So the people that sort of defended the National Endowment for the Arts did not make a case for work that was provocative. 
there was this tendency to sort of disown it and, you know, um, not really take on, you know, not really, you know, they never really reframed the debate. Um, all the great sound bites came out of the right. And, um, which is generally the case. It is. It is. <laughs> the, it is. The liberal it side is. Spectrum's not good with sound. I bites. know. It's not it, you because know, you can't do so well with um, gray areas. If sound, they don't lend themselves well to right. sound bites. Perhaps. Yes, I think that that's part of it. Is like you know complexity. You know, is is anti sound bite. Um, but also, I I do think that some of the anxieties that that Helms et cetera were. were um, we're operating out of are just you know I th- I think that the, the the people on the left were also deeply uncomfortable with some of the work that was um, and couldn't think of a way to I mean it, it it's a difficult it, it's not easy to make the case for work that's provocative that raises questions um, so we won some court victories but i would say overall we lost the war um because I, in the wake of this so what happened was the 18 were recommended for grants four of you um karen finley tim miller john fleck and you holly hughes um your grants were then denied by right. the federal government and then you took it as far as the supreme court and were awarded the equivalent in um damages for what the grant would have been but then f- individual funding for artists by the NEA was no longer an option? Is that the, one of the, the losses? The, uh, the, yes. We got our grants um, actually in Clinton's second term. He got a grant. So we lost. The argument that we made for the Supreme Court was um, um, trying to declare these sort of decency requirements on NEA funding to get them declared unconstitutional, and we lost. Um, not because the Supreme Court said that... that that they they didn't see that there was a requirement um, to be decent. It was a suggestion. It's just merely a serving suggestion. So you don't have to do it that way. Um, so it was, I think, really splitting hairs. Um, but also the conservatives were just, let's, you know, here's an easy way out of this. Uh, you know, easy way to resolve this is just, don't have any individual artist funding. You know, fund dead people. I went to a conference this, uh, in Texas that was for the 40th anniversary of the NEA and heard Dana Joya, who is the chair of the NEA, speak. And he's very smooth. He's very articulate. He's really like, I mean, he's a poet, but he's also a suit. Um, he was a businessman for years before. Was he? I believe so. Um, he... Um, he was he was in, you know incredibly smooth and you know when you talk about like what they're funding it's like it's um you know it's all about it's all about bringing shakespeare into the hood or something like that which i feel like is ensuring that you know yet another generation <laughs> of under underserved children hate the arts and feel like it has nothing to do with them. Um, so do you think that the arts sort of went back into safe territory that um, uh, what's going on in the real world is not the subject of art? What happened in the world is the, is the safe space for art? I, th- I think that um, I think that a lot of community-based 
arts organizations went under. And, um, you know, I mean, there's still a vital alternative art scene in any of our big cities and some places outside of the big cities. Um, but it's harder and harder to support that. It's harder and harder. It's not just about supporting the artists or art administrators. It's also about making the work accessible to a wide range of audience. I mean, it's amazing to me when I go back to New York and I go to performance or theater, everything is so expensive. And well, New York has gotten, since the nine, like early 2000s, everything just... It's went. just, it's crazy. And even the places that... You know, um, I remember the place that I I performed a lot at, at Performance Space 122 for a long time. And, uh, um, you know, uh, the last time, um, I ticket, ticket prices went, you know, to $30 there where they used to be like 10 12 and, you know, with student discounts. And um, so it really changes who can go and how often they can go to stuff. It really changes the work that's going to be seen. And, and a lot of that is true. It's not like anybody's getting rich at those organizations. Um, it's it's about, um, it, it reflects um, how expensive it is to do live theater, live performance, and the lack of government funding. Well, we're going to take a short break on that note, and we'll be back. Um, you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. It's the top of the hour, and my guest today is performance artist Holly Hughes. We'll be right back. Tuned into the little, blah, blah, blah. You're tuned into something. You're tuned into WCBN. Easy for you to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is performance artist, playwright, writer, professor at the University of Michigan. A lot of Holly things Hughes. with the letter P in it. It which is. Which is, you know, difficult and tricky to say into the microphone without you know, a lot of spray <laughs> and, like, you know, eardrum damage to our, our at-home listening audience. Home listening audience, yes. Well, I'm working, at, I've, I've, I'm trying to book guests where, who, for whom I can say things alliteratively. So today, <laughs> in the promo for the show, I said we're going to talk about complacency, controversy, and um, then decency, art, and action. Mm. Um, we've sort of ranged some of those subjects today. Um and we spent the last segment of the show talking about um, 
the culture wars of the 90s and sort of the fallout and where that leaves. A big buzzkill, wasn't it? It was really <laughs> a bi- I'm, I'm sorry. It's a, what a downer. <laughs> and then it's like nothing. I mean, the 90s were nothing compared to what we have we now. now. It's bad. It's, it's bad. Funny. Well, and you moved to New York from Michigan in the 70s uh-huh. and mentioned that you could go from one little place to another and that that was part of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what... Um, helped you become the artist that you are today, the writer that you are today. And I'm wondering how, and and then you told us the story of um, the project you're working on, Mm -hmm. Who's Afraid of Virginia Ham, Mm -hmm. um, and the work that you're doing with both your undergraduate and your graduate students Mm -hmm. to go to the Bentley Museum and Mm -hmm, figure mm -hmm. out how to pull those projects together. I'm wondering, in this moment where there is very little funding for the arts, venues are expensive, it's Mm -hmm. hard to get out there. Um, We're not particularly um, a country that... um, supports and celebrates intellectual, creative, artistic um, endeavor. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the the inspiration and the support and the, the chutzpah to just keep on going comes from in your own work today? Well, sometimes, I mean, I... As, as well as working with undergraduate students, I have like a couple of... I have my... Uh, my pal and graduate student, um, James Leha, who is an MFA student here, and, and he was on the show, I believe, when um, Sarah had him as her guest last spring in oh, May, I believe. Oh, really? Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. And he uh, and um, Aaron Markey and, and Brian Hybor and Johannes Schuster-Craig, who were all ex-students of mine and a few years out of uh, undergraduate, and they're doing amazing work, and they're just sort of doing it. And there's something about, like, when you're, like, approaching geezerhood, <laughs> there is... Um, um, you go from a, being a Michigander to a Michigeezer. <laughs> oh, that is so painful, isn't it? That's a really awful image. Um, but there's there's a certain kind of energy and excitement and uh, of of youth. That's true. There is something there. You're not you know, a shriveled, bitter, dried arrangement in the corner like I would be if I weren't around them. Um, It's, um, I mean, that is, that's an interesting question. It's a question that I would love to, that I'm interested in asking other middle-aged creative people. What keeps you going? Why do you keep doing, especially if you're not, I mean, it's, it's easier if you, you know if you've become a household name, um, but suppose you are in a situation with some of my other artist friends um, who have had really respectable careers, done a lot of work, and gotten some recognition for it, but um, you know aren't household names. So since we see that fame and um, financial success has been such a barometer of artistic success, and it, it's hard not to um, take that in. Especially, I think we get more and more uh, celebrity obsessed. So, what is it about the work? Um, and I have to keep going back and and asking that. And part of it is in teaching, you know. Um, I, you know, remind my students, I had a student who was in just the foulest of foul moods the other day um, is working on a senior project. And I'm like, well, this is a place where that can live. 
you know i mean the emotion if, yeah i mean if you're an accountant it's like you can't go into the <laughs> yeah like put it into the work maybe some of them do <laughs> maybe that's what happened I with enron <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's but as creative people i mean we do have this 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 place um so so that's that's part of it and um and also, I mean, looking at other people that are continuing to make work, why they make work, um, but but it's but it's an ongoing question, and um, um, that yeah, looking it's an ongoing at question. that looking at how people are making work and creating work. We spoke just before we started the show a little bit about Shakespeare, and you've mentioned um, how Shakespeare. Ugh. And uh, enough with the Shakespeare already, <laughs> Ann Arbor, please. I mean, he's dead. He's dead for a long time. I would say I would add a modifier in there, but I've already like, I've already like compromised this radio station's viability enough. But he is really, really dead. And you know what? Good stuff was written after he died. It's not everything. Oh, my God. I just, I can't bear it. I can't bear the ends. It's like this brand name that just like in, in, in huge letters, 50 feet high, that's like the Hollywood sign hovering over Ann Arbor, Shakespeare, and casting a shadow. And like, it's so amazing that, you know, I mean, do they know that there's living writers? I don't think so. Not any good ones. <laughs> Everything you want is in that Shakespeare. Oh yeah, let's go see. You know, it's 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 um it's it's uh I, I the the fact that there's so little support and and little support in this place for contemporary performance work for theater work um, is is and this is no. I know that exists for many, many reasons, um, and that I'm not the only person interested in contemporary theater and performance that's that's frustrated. But the Shakespeare workshop. Oh. I was at a. I what was there a question behind that, or is this like an excuse for me to <laughs> for like rant? just like rant? No, no, no. Like, there, there was just, a question. Uh, There's a. There seems to me to be a difference um, in the way um, writers who are doing performance, so writing mm-hmm. for audiences collaborate and work with each other, mm-hmm. um, not just the legacy from which they come. So mm-hmm. um, in writing plays, you may study and be familiar with Shakespeare, but you're also talking to and going to see other mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. other contemporary performers. And um, we mentioned earlier, talked, talked, talked a little bit earlier about how important that's been to you, getting mm-hmm. out there and, and seeing mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, you've been instrumental in bringing some really interesting folks here this semester. We've had um, can we run down the list of folks who are coming? Or the Split Bridges Split Bridges Theater Company was here. was here and they were co-sponsored by the Penny Stamps program at uh, School of Art and Design but also through um, this series that I uh, co-direct with David Halper and the uh, Lesbian Gay Queer Research Initiative. I have to make sure I get all the like and I think Neil Bartlett came as part of Neil that Bartlett, in the fall. Neil and was Bartlett on the show. and um, the visual artist Glenn Ligon came in the fall. Um, we had the author Kenji Yoshino was here, who just wrote this great, interesting book uh, covering. He's a law professor at um, at Yale, and 
and it's a, it's sort of reframing civil rights. Um, and Carmelita Tropicana is coming. Is soon. coming in April, and um, and that's also when you're performing. Who's afraid of Virginia? Uh, yeah, it's really too close to. <laughs> But maybe I can hire her to perform Who's Afraid of Virginia Ham. And just step out? And just, yeah, take the school van and go someplace. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, but you no. know when you're working on a new project, there are those moments when, like, um, this has been a horrible mistake. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, folks, and I'll see you later. Where does that sort of come in? Because um, the process, does, have you had people look at stuff and that sort of creates the anxiety, or is it just the closer you get to it's, I think it's, a piece? it's the whole thing of the crunch time of pulling together. Um, it, it, part of it is wearing a lot of hats. I'm a teacher, but I'm also, like, directing a project um, that's going to have public a public presentation. Um, it's... It's, um, but there's, there's, you know, there's never enough time. There's never enough resources. Um, there's always, there's, there's lots of like, you know, where did you set down your keys? Um, let alone, you know, who has the videotape that you need and who has the script? Um, it, it's, I love it, but it's also, I mean, it, it is really, um, it's, it's, I mean, doing theater is like doing drugs, really. I mean, maybe art is like that. It's, but it is this like intensified experience, and it's really insane. Um, partially because theater always happens in this pressure cooker of a time frame. You just you don't have, you can't take forever to write. You know, writing might be different, but like the rehearsal of it happens in a very, you know compressed time and pulling something together and I love that sort of the sort of community temporary community aspect of it and I kind of love the insanity of it um, in the way that probably junkies really love the ins- you know this insane the parallel universe that you drop into um, that other people like like oh my god it's completely crazy is that anxiety or or craziness or high intensified by the the level of controversy inherent to the material, or did, are those two sort of separate sorts of things? I mean, you've, you've I've been had at different times, not so much this piece, but on other shows that I've worked on on my own stuff. I mean, there is that always that that voice in the back of your head, or maybe in the front of the head, or maybe sitting right there in the audience on an opening night, um, like you know, this is terrible. Um, your anxieties about where the work is, but um, um, it's and there's the anxiety about like new work and you know not knowing how it's going to come together. But it's I think it's just it's just it's just like pulling something together um, and keeping something together and and having you know it, it's taking the plant into the hot house and making it bloom on your schedule um, and in the way that you, you know, after you've like sort of trimmed the root ball and, and made the whole thing into some little shape that, you know, maybe it didn't want to go on your own, you know, but you hope it looks okay. You hope it doesn't, it you know, it, it makes sense, this bonsai that you, cr- how many metaphors do I have going Just now? Just pile them on. Just pile them on. That's another word with a P in it. Pile it on. Pile it on. 
come on everybody and let's just pile it on so <laughs> and you know it is an insanity that that happens with with that but i love the the community and i love the f- working with students in this way where they have some ownership of the material they're making um so very different than working on a solo on thing own. Well, we are about to wrap up the show, so I want to ask you for the quick what's next. You've got Who's Afraid of Virginia Ham coming up at the end of April. Uh-huh. And that's, tell me the dates again. It's the 14th, 15th, 16th. 16th at the Dudestadt Center on North Campus. And then um, the dude. will you be performing this summer in New York? Um, I probably am not going to perform this summer in New York, but I am working on a new performance piece, um, The Dog and Pony Show, um, about uh, teaching the come, teaching the stay. It's a midlife crisis in the key of canine. And you have lots of dogs. I have 